Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the channel with Carrie Figder. Carrie is associate professor of philosophy at the University of Iowa. Today, my guest is Professor Terence Cuneo. His new book is titled Speech and Morality on the Meta-Ethical Implications of Speaking. It has just been published by Oxford University Press. Cuneo is professor of philosophy at the University of Vermont. It's widely accepted that in uttering sentences, we sometimes perform distinctive kinds of acts. We declare, assert, challenge, question, and corroborate by means of speech. Sometimes we also use speech to perform acts like promising, commanding, judging, pronouncing, and even christening. Yet it seems that in order to perform an act of, say, promising, one must have a certain kind of normative status. At the very least, one must be accountable. Similarly, in order to issue a command, one must, in some sense, have the authority to do so. It seems, then, that the power to perform acts by means of speech depends upon the normative status and standing of speakers. In Speech and Morality, Terence Cuneo appeals to this fact in devising an original and compelling argument for moral realism. He claims that were it not for the existence of moral facts, we would not be able to perform ordinary speech acts, such as promising. As we clearly do perform such acts, there must be moral facts. That's the simple argument that lies at the heart of Cuneo's fascinating book. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Terence Cuneo. Hi, Bob. How are you doing today? Doing well, thanks. Well, that's great. Thank you for joining us on New Books and Philosophy. It's my pleasure. And thank you, audience, uh, for tuning in to New Books and Philosophy. Today, I'm talking with Terence Cuneo about his new book, Speech and Morality on the Meta-Ethical Implications of Speaking. In this book, Terence develops what I think is a fascinating argument in favor of moral realism, and the argument's rooted in a compelling account of speech act theory. In fact, I'd go so far as to say that this book draws surprisingly robust philosophical conclusions from what look to me like sort of undeniable premises. Um, that is sometimes thought to be a gold standard in philosophy books. Um, and I think this book uh, uh, really does a, a, a real admirable job at, at meeting that standard. Um, so there's a lot to talk about. Um, but before we get going on the arguments, um, Terrence, uh, let's begin with you. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I was born in New York State, New Rochelle, New York. Both my parents grew up in the Bronx. Um, I think for the most part, they were the first generation, um, both on my mom's side and my dad's side, to go to college. Uh, my dad had an advanced degree um, was a lawyer. I, I don't think that either of my parents would describe themselves as particularly philosophical. And I had no real uh, exposure to philosophy at all. Um, 
uh, growing up. What what I did know is that I was really really bored in high school, and I didn't realize that until I until I got to college. Um, I took my first philosophy class as a sophomore in college. That was with Georgia Warnke. It was a political philosophy class, and for me it was like uh, love at first sight. Uh, I just fell in love with the subject, and I really didn't know anything about the field. I had very little guidance. I just I just knew I really liked it, and uh, it looked much more interesting to me than going to law school. So I just sort of pursued my my gut on this, and you know, ended up in graduate school. Um, I, I went to study medieval philosophy of all things. Um, at a certain point, when my professors took me aside and asked me, "Hey, do you want a job or not?" And I said, "Well, of course I do." <laughs> <laughs> well, you ought to be doing something else. You ought to be doing something that's marketable. So I, I actually, sort of in a strategic sort of way, switched to ethics, which is like I kind of think it was one of the few strategic decisions I've made in my life. <laughs> um, and um, it really wasn't that difficult. I, I found abstract questions and moral theory really, really interesting, and so that's what I ended up writing my dissertation on. And, and this book is, um, and the one that precedes it, uh, the Normative Web, which came out in 2007, um, is you know really just an outgrowth of, of thinking about these issues and wondering about these issues for for some years. All right, excellent. Um, can I just very quickly so uh, about the transition from medieval to ethics? Yeah. Um, were you working in uh, value theoretic questions in medieval philosophy, or were your interest in medieval philosophy um, metaphysical or epistemological? Was there any sort of? I guess the question is, was there any overlap between the medieval stuff and the ethics? Yeah, there was some overlap, but I was, you know, much more interested in in um, doing more metaphysics actually at that point. Ah. And in particular, I was I was thinking about Aquinas quite a bit and working on Aquinas and. You know, working through his commentary on Aristotle's metaphysics, that kind of thing. Um, right. So, yeah, real historical bent. Um, so it did it did um, uh, mark a fairly significant shift in in my in my interests. Excellent. Well, um, why don't we talk about the book? Um, and I wanted to start um, because uh, one of the virtues of the book, there are many, um, is that very early on you you give a very succinct. Um, articulation of the main thesis of the book, and I'm just going to just going to cite it or quote it. Um, so, um, in your preface, you say, "I'm quoting you: um, If there were no moral facts, then we would not be able to speak." Um, now, I remember reading that as I started reading the book. It, it, this sentence occurs pretty early in the preface, even, um, and I said, "Wow, to myself, that's a that's a." That's a really bold claim. Yeah. Um, wow, I, I mean, amazing. I obviously do speak. So you know, uh, I, yeah, you run the you run the inference, and you're like, wow, just by speaking, um, I'm I, I can know that there are because I speak, it follows that there are moral facts in some way. Um, so um, that sounds to me like, and will sound to. Uh, some of our listeners, uh, no doubt, uh, like a transcendental argument, an argument that proceeds by trying to identify the conditions for the possibility of something that uh, is obviously possible because it's actual. Um, so, uh, and transcendental arguments have a storied history in the um, uh, tradition of philosophy. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that, the form of the argument or, or how you understand? I mean, am I right in thinking that it's a transcendental argument or a quasi-transcendental? Yeah, argument? yeah, I think at, at, at um, one point of the book. I actually do um, characterize it as as being uh, transcendental in, in nature. Um, 
So, yeah, as you characterize transcendental arguments, you know, specifying the necessary conditions, uh, the possibility of some phenomenon that um, we have really good reason to believe is actual, um, yeah, I think the, the argument is probably aptly described as a version of a or a form of a transcendental argument. Um, that having been said, I don't really spend any time in, uh, in the book uh, talking about transcendental arguments. I, I know there's a lot of controversy and about exactly how to characterize them and you know, how they're supposed to work and so forth. So I, I don't really get into any of that. And, and as far as I'm concerned, um, yeah, the labels aren't going to matter so much. But as, as far as capturing the spirit of the argument, the way it's supposed to go, I think it does capture the spirit of the argument and, and roughly the way it runs without sort of digging into the details of, you know, exactly how different, uh, how transcendental arguments are supposed to run. Right. And am I right in thinking that this kind of argument, transcend, however we would like to call it, uh, there's a separate issue, but this kind of argument, I mean, it seems um, it's not commonly deployed, uh, at least in, in the meta-ethics that I know of. I mean, this seems like a novel um, <laughs> style of argument for moral realism. Am I right in thinking that? Yeah, I suppose you're right about that. I hadn't, I hadn't quite... <laughs> Thought about that as I was as I was working through uh, you know the argument and, and trying to spell it out, but I, su- I suppose that's right. Um, I suppose David Enoch's recent uh, 2011 book, Taking Morality Seriously, which is, a, in my opinion, a wonderful book, yes, um, comes close to with his uh, inference of the best explanation, doing something in this area. Yeah. So yeah, I, I think it's. Fairly unusual, but um, you know maybe it has some close relatives in in the meta meta ethical literature as well. And one last question on this, so, but um, um, the argument that you present is is a kind of stronger um, or more robust, or tries to get a more robust conclusion than an inference to the best explanation argument. The argument um, that you're pressing isn't that. Um, uh, like an infant to the best explanation, you know, th- that there would, if there were moral facts, it would be a really good explanation of the things that we can see. Yeah. Um, so therefore we should believe them. It's, yeah. um, this thing that we have good reason to think that we do would be impossible were it not for the facts, right? Yeah, I, I think that's right as far as sort of the, you know, the, um, the core argument in the book. Now, as far as arguing for um, various premises of the argument, yeah, I think we do have some inferences to the best explanation at work, right. for sure. Right. So, yeah. Well, good. Let's. Um, so, uh, again, I, this is a, a, a. I'm fascinated by the argument, okay. uh, and uh, <laughs> you know, it's funny. You know, we, we we philosophers work on things, and you work on it long enough, and it just feels utterly pedestrian. You know, <laughs> someone finds it interesting. I think, oh yeah, I remember once finding it interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I should forward you some emails between me and a couple of my colleagues here, where I've. I've sent them sentences from the book i'm like this is an amazing uh what an what an ambition uh, uh what an amazing book um so b- by the way th- there are probably about six people at vanderbilt who are reading the book right now um oh, nice. okay. <laughs> nice so um 
Uh, now let's turn to the sort of central plank of the argument, or one of the, the main ingredients of this argument, um, which you call the normative theory of speech. Yeah. And this is a particular interpretation of um, what our listeners will recognize as sort of speech act theory. Um, yeah. Can you tell us a, a little bit about this particular version of speech act theory and maybe contrast it with um, some of the other um, positions that our listeners might be familiar with, sort of Surly and Gricean kinds of uh, um, views? Yeah, sure. Um, so w- within the uh, um, tradition of, of working in speech act theory that, you know, J.L. Austin and uh, got up and running and, and John Searles certainly made really, really important contributions to and William Alston. Um, uh, these philosophers tend to work with a threefold distinction between what they call locutionary acts, illocutionary acts and perlocutionary acts. Uh, locutionary acts are just basically um, acts of uttering or inscribing sentences. Uh, so right now, you and I are performing various locutionary acts or sentential acts, as you might call them. Mm-hmm. Illocutionary acts, by contrast, are uh, what are often referred to as speech acts, such as asserting, commanding, promising, christening, uh, uh, declaring, so forth. Um the thought is that we perform illocutionary acts by the performance of locutionary acts. So it's by performing uh, sentence utterances or sentence inscriptions, or if you're you know, speaking with uh, sign language, you know, movements of the hands that you assert things or promise things or command things. Paralocutionary acts, which is the third category, um, are acts by which we bring about certain kinds of effects in our audience, such as bewildering, bewildering them or puzzling them or delighting them. Um, and so philosophers have wondered, uh, after they've made these distinctions between three different types of uh, acts that constitute speech, um, how they all hang together, how are they related? Um, so um, there's agreement that we um, perform illocutionary acts by the performance of locutionary acts and that we perform uh, perlocutionary acts by the performance of locutionary acts and illocutionary acts. But like, how do these things hang together? And the puzzle that I focus on in the book is what exactly the relationship is between locutionary acts, say sentence utterances and illocutionary acts, say assertions or commands and the thought is something like sentence utterances uh, aren't identical with illocutionary acts. When I utter the sentence, say, the coffee is hot, that's not identical with asserting that the coffee is hot because I can I can utter that sentence without asserting anything. I might just be offering you, for example, an example of a well-formed English sentence or maybe testing a microphone. Um, likewise, I can perform the action of asserting that the coffee is hot without um, um, uttering that sentence. I can do it by way of moving my hands in certain ways or even by Morse code. So so the two types of acts are not identical, um, but they're very, very closely related. And so now we have to figure out what exactly the relation is. What is the glue? How does it how does it come about that our performance of uttering a sentence like the coffee is hot counts as uh, uttering uh, counts as asserting that the coffee is hot? So within the Speech Act literature, there are basically two main schools of thought here. On the one hand, there's Grice, and I think under a certain interpretation, uh, Searle, uh, although I think it's a little more difficult to pin Searle's views down here. Uh, definitely William Alston, who has a very important book um, 
that he published in 2000, uh, Illocutionary Acts and Sentence Meaning. Also, Robert Brandom, um, uh, Defensive View in this neighborhood, and uh, my teacher, former teacher, Nick Walterstorff, uh, interestingly enough, way back in, well, I think it was 1980 in his book on aesthetics, um, Works and Worlds of Art, and later in his 1995 book, uh, Divine Discourse, defended what I call the normative theory of speech. So that's one, one, one sort of tradition within speech act theory. And the other tradition within speech act theory, um, mainly has its roots in Grice's work, uh, is the so-called perlocutionary intention, uh, theory. So they're going to offer us different accounts of what brings it about, what explains that the utterance of a sentence counts as, or as I sometimes put in the book, generates uh, a speech act or an illocutionary act, such as commanding or asserting or promising. So what the normative theory does is it says what explains the fact that, say, a sentence utterance generates an assertion is the fact that the speaker, by uttering that sentence, has altered his normative position vis-a-vis his audience. So the thought is, if I utter the sentence, uh, that cup of coffee is hot, um, and it's false, say that that cup of coffee is hot, you now have a right um, to to correct me. Um, I am liable to correction in uttering that sentence, as I have, as it were, put myself on the hook. Um, um, and, ma- and made myself liable to correction or say a little differently. I utter the sentence and, it, and, and I don't believe it at all. I don't believe that the coffee is hot. Well, um, now I'm also liable to correction of a certain kind. Uh, in this case, you have a right to, uh, say, admonish me for lying or being insincere or what have you. So the normative theory of speech wants to say at least in part what explains how it is that the performance of locutionary acts generates illocutionary acts is, as I say, a shift in normative position, which a uh, speaker uh, has rights, responsibilities, and obligations of certain kinds. The perlocutionary intention view tends not to pay much attention at all to rights, responsibilities, and obligations, although one of the observations I do make in the book is that I think under fairly natural construal, it's kind of there below the surface. It's just they're, they're not stressing it. What they tend to emphasize is the speaker's intentions in uh, speaking. Um, the thought is that what brings it about that a sentence utterance counts as an assertion is that the speaker wishes to get his audience in a certain kind of state of mind. Um, what, what exact state of mind exactly? Well, they differ about what they say there, but something like an intention to get the, the audience to believe the proposition just uttered, or at least to consider the proposition just uttered so as to be in a position to consider it, reject it, accept it, or what have you. So, um, there are different ways of combining these views. Uh, one could combine both the views, but for the most part, it's, it's, um, uh, perhaps a difference in what these different theorists think is fundamental. The normative theorists think that, yeah, it's the normative stuff that's fundamental. It's really doing uh, the explaining here, at least a lot of the important explaining. Um, uh, whereas the prelocutionary act folks want to say, no, it's the speaker's intentions that are really doing the, uh, um, the explanatory work here. Um, so part of what I have to do in the book is to spell out the normative theory in some detail. Um, in a lot of ways, you know, for me, that was the most time consuming um, aspect of writing the book because it required me to uh, uh, dig pretty deep into the literature and, and also try to 
go some places where the literature hadn't, hadn't gone. Um, um, so yeah, that's, that's the basic difference. Um, and one of the points I do make, as I've already mentioned at various points is that, um, uh, it takes a little bit of work to formulate a version of the prolocutionary view, which, you know, sort of lets the normative dimensions of speech just kind of slide. It doesn't really care about those things. It doesn't, doesn't, it doesn't emphasize at all the explanatory work that these features are doing. Um, so I, I work with a version of the prelocutionary view, which really downplays the normative dimensions of speech and a version of the uh, normative view that really um, emphasizes the normative dimensions of speech. So great. So would you um, let me let me return to that sentence that I quoted from from um, from the preface and let yeah. me introduce a little uh, uh, tweak to it and, and, and see if you would accept this. So um, would it be too far off to say that if there if there, the thesis is that if there were no moral facts, then there'd be no elocutionary action? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm definitely thinking of speech or discourse as consisting in the performance of illocutionary acts or speech acts. Yeah. Yeah. So, so an, is, an important thing to see here is that the speech is a pretty robust phenomenon. Um, the, the thought is not that it would be impossible for us to communicate information uh, mm-hmm. where there are no moral facts. Um, uh, rather, the thought is we couldn't perform such acts as asserting and promising and commanding and declaring and the like where there are no moral facts. So, yeah. And just to sort of preview, I'm going to ask you something um, uh, in a minute uh, to, to fill in the details. And the reason for that is that um, uh, in order to be an asserter, well, in order for there to be assertions or challenges or commands, there have to be the normative roles or the normative standings of being an asserter or a commander or a declarer. Is that how the argument runs? Um, yes. Uh, <laughs> it, gets a little, it gets a little complicated at this point because I think speech acts have different profiles. Um, so if you were to think about, say, what's required to perform speech acts such as commanding and promising, at least in a non-defective way, you know, perform a well-formed version of these sorts of speech acts. Um, one of the observations I make in, in the book is that, yeah, you have to have a certain kind of standing power, a certain kind of authority to issue the command or issue the, the promise. I, for example, could not promise you, I could not perform a well-formed promise right now to give you a, a pay raise, uh, whereas your provost could, right? Um, <laughs> so I have to have a certain kind of standing or authority to do that. Um, and that, and that um, certainly looks like it's a, a normative standing. It consists in having certain kinds of rights vis-a-vis uh, a certain um, class of people. Um, it's worth noting that um, uh, the normative theory as such doesn't commit itself to this normative stuff, the rights, responsibilities, obligations, the standing powers, or the authority that one has in order to perform these speech acts um, is moral, right? That takes that takes argument. It's just it's just right now the point of saying, oh, there's there's normative stuff here that's uh, got to be in place in order for us to perform these speech acts. Good. Let me just ask one one other sort of um, uh, again sort of prefatory 
question because I'm about to ask you just to run us through the what you call the the speech act argument. Yeah. Um, could you sort of uh, maybe it, it might be helpful to to our listeners maybe for you to draw the analogy that you begin in the uh, the book with the um, the sort of response from Clark to uh, to Hobbes, um, and it, I take it that the book is in a sense a kind of you know um, playing out of this critical thought that Samuel Clark had against Hobbes uh, and sort of trying to uh, generalize it. Yeah, so the thought is uh, under an interpretation, which I'm not a, at all convinced is correct of Hobbes, but <laughs> take, take a broadly conventionalist approach to morality. Um, I think, I think in the book I actually do quote from Elizabeth Anderson at, uh, uh, at Michigan, who seems to be sympathetic with a view in this neighborhood. We'll take a view according to which, you know, here we are um, – um, um, we've got to live together. We've got to make arrangements so that, um, we treat each other well and, and so forth. So, um, what we do is discuss things and, um, in Hobbes's case, make a compact with one another, um, so as to institute certain kinds of norms. And it turns out that when we get together and do this sort of thing, uh, this is the way that morality emerges, right? We talk to one another, we discuss things, and we make agreements of various sorts, and um, bam, there we have it, right? Much in the same way you might think of uh, law. You know, we got together, started talking about what sorts of laws we need in order to have, you know, say, uh, uh, a traffic system that works halfway well or what have you. They were thinking, they were thinking about morality along similar lines. Now, Clark found himself mystified by this in, in, in Hobbes, right? Um, because I think he was sensitive to the fact that in order for these folks to get together and, and, you know, have these discussions and make promises to one another, um, the very act of performing promises or compacts with one another looks really normatively loaded to begin with. Uh, and when you take a closer look at the normativity involved, um, it also appears to be moral. So Clark's worry is that, hey, you know, under this interpretation of Hobbes or at least conventionalist views, um, they're not explaining the emergence of morality uh, or moral norms at all. Um, in fact, the very speech acts that they perform in order to uh, articulate these norms, presuppose um, the existence of such norms. So that's basically what Clark was worried about, and it's this kind of uh, observation that I try to generalize from and, and enrich in the book, yeah. Well, great. Um, so we've got so far as the fact that there is speaking that's recognizable to us as such means that there's normative stuff. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, I guess then the the real core is the speech act uh, the speech act argument um, that you uh, raise um, uh, early in the book and then keep referring to uh, and, and returning to the defense of. Yeah. Um, can you run us through that more particular argument that's supposed to show um, that um, the kind of normativity that gets involved is um, of a particular sort and um, it emerges in a particular way? Uh, and then the, I guess the next link in the argument is going to be, and we need to give a realist interpretation of that stuff. Um, but can you run us through the Speech Act argument first? Yeah, so so the, the argument is um, yeah going to, going to begin with... Um, um, the observation that we do perform uh, illocutionary acts, such as asserting, promising, commanding, and the like. And there has to be something that explains why the performance of what are called locutionary acts following Alston um, generates these illocutionary acts. 
And then the claim is that it's an agent's uh, having the rights, responsibilities, and obligations of being a speaker that does this work. Um, that so far forth, those those that second claim and the third claim is is basically the normative theory of speech. Um, what I claim then is that um, uh, uh, some of these rights, responsibilities, um, and obligations are, are moral. Um, and, uh, you know, since we do speak, um, um, uh, there are, uh, moral rights, responsibilities, and obligations. I just refer to these as, as moral facts of certain kinds. Um, that's not exactly right, but it'll work for our purposes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so then we talked a little bit about this, like an argument to the best explanation, how this sort of argument is much more uh, um, uh, popular in, in metaethics. Yeah, the, here I do offer an argument to the best explanation that when you actually dig into the details of the sorts of rights, responsibilities, and obligations that speakers have when they perform uh, uh, illocutionary acts such as asserting and uh, promising commanding, they look for all the world as if uh, they are moral features. Um, um, so, for example, um, uh, if uh, we're in a situation, once again, I assert that the um, the cup of coffee is hot, and it really matters. Let's say, you know, this is nuts, and and yet I dissemble. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I give you some false information in a context that matters. I'm trying to think of a context in which this really does matter. But <laughs> anyway, <laughs> let's just imagine it really does matter. Um, um, and I put myself on the hook, you know, if it turns out that, um, you know, I, I've uttered this um, and I'm not sincere at all uh, in the utterance, um, dissembling. Now I'm liable to to blame, to admonishment. And so you might think, uh, what kind of um, 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 violation has occurred? And I want to claim that, yeah, for all the world, it looks like it's a moral violation of a certain kind. Um you, as the audience, have a right to hold me morally accountable for dissembling in this case. So the thought is, is that um, there is going to be lots and lots of normativity uh, in speech. Speech is suffused, I want to say, with normativity. And some of the normativity, some of the rights, responsibilities, and obligations uh, look to be moral. Um, uh, I help myself to a, a broadly reading sort of methodology, according to which, um, in this case, um, uh, uh, we ought to uh, trust the appearances uh, unless we've got some pretty good reasons not to. So I don't, I don't conclude, and you know, so therefore they are moral. I just say, yeah, we've got you know some some prima facie evidence for thinking they are. Uh, now we've got to think, we've got to consider some views um, or some reasons for thinking that they couldn't. The normative stuff that uh, uh, suffuses speech um, couldn't be moral. So that's that's an additional step in the argument. And there I engage with um, some of the uh, more um, um, popular arguments against there being moral facts. Um, um, and um, I make some moves here, I think, that are, are perhaps different from um, uh, a lot of the moves that you see in the meta-ethical literature. Um, um, one of the moves that I try to make is that I, I take a claim such as, uh, I think I call it in the book, the normative claim, yep. um, where uh, uh, I say, uh, it looks for all the world that it's morally wrong to break one's promise simply because one feels like it. 
Okay, mm-hmm. that seems pretty plausible. Um, now, take that claim. In fact, I'm going to say that, you know, if you had something like an alleged moral system and it didn't include propositions of this sort, uh, it would be incomplete at, at, at best. And if it's sort of issued in its denial, at least for creatures like us, situated as we are, I think we would have a normative system that's not a moral system. This, this really does look to be constitutive of uh, a, a, a moral system. And so, you know, I take claims like this that I think I have a pretty good claim to being sort of framework status propositions uh, uh, under some usages of the claim uh, conceptual. I uh, look to be uh, conceptual uh, truths of a certain kind. And... Um, then I take uh, a look at some of the arguments that philosophers offer for moral anti-realism. One, one, one really popular argument that stems from Mackey and Joyce in his um, books, um, most obviously in his book, uh, The Myth of Morality, um, um, notes that realists are committed to the claim that um, if moral facts exist, then there must be categorical reasons, reasons that apply to us no matter what sorts of commitments we have. And that there couldn't be any such reasons, uh, so there are no moral facts. Um, um, so I, I focus on that first claim. If there are moral facts, then there's got to be categorical reason. Just granting, for the sake of argument, that it is also a sort of a framework status proposition. Anything that counts as a moral system would have to imply or include this. And then I say, well, you know, take a look at these two propositions. The normative claim on the one hand, which says it's morally wrong to break one's promise because one feels like it. And on the other hand, this sort of meta-ethical claim that if there are moral facts, supposed to be a conceptual truth, then there have got to be categorical reasons. And I say, well, you know what? You know, folks like Mackey and Joyce really haven't given us much reason to reject the first claim uh, rather than the second claim. And as best I can tell, um, they don't really have any non-arbitrary reason for for doing that. And so what I do here is not argue that these views are false, um, but I do argue that... That is to say, views like the error theory, according to which there are no moral facts. But um, they're definitely uh, under-motivated. These, um, the proponents of these views haven't given us um, powerful enough arguments to, to hold that there, there are no moral facts and that we ought not to, say, take the appearance that um, you know, when I dissemble um, in telling you that the, the coffee is not hot, that I'm, I've thereby violated a moral obligation. Right, and you present, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, you sort of present th- this argument um, or this form of the argument against a, a, a couple of different yeah. competing views. Yeah. And it takes the form of a dilemma, doesn't it? That is that the error theory either has to, and these are what you sometimes call mixed views, um, and I take it that the, the mix is that they commit to some kind of normative claim, even if it is just a claim about what a moral system or what a moral theory ought to be like. Um, and um, you say, well, either we can't make the distinction between, say, you know, moral discourse and other kinds of norm- normative discourse, or um, uh, actually, now, what's on the other side of the dilemma? How oh, does yeah, the dilemma, the dilemma yeah, basically, I said, look, um, 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 I'm going to take it for granted that something like the, well, I just argued, I'm not going to take it for granted, I just argued for the <laughs> theory of speech. Um, so let's suppose I'm right about that, um, that this is sort of the best view we've got up and running. Now, what, what should we say, uh, and I've also argued that, that we have pretty good reasons to believe that some of this normative stuff is moral. That's mm-hmm. It really looks that way. Um, now, um, I think on the face of things, an error theory 
or Eretherus might be perfectly happy. You know, Eretherus once again is someone who says that there are no moral facts. Um, might be perfectly happy saying, "Oh yeah, of course, there's there, there are normative features, rights, responsibilities, and obligations that constitute speech, but it's all non-moral. So we're going to have to do we're going to have to sort of uh, uh, reject the claim that the appearances are veridical. Right? We have to reject the claim that um, the fact that uh, some of these rights, responsibilities, and obligations appear to be moral um, at the end of the day." Uh, uh, give us good enough reasons to believe that some of them are moral. So uh, they've got independent reasons for thinking there are no no moral facts. And so then I represent a dilemma, something like, look, some of your arguments are such that they're so powerful that they would imply that um, there isn't even this sort of more mundane, conventional sort of normativity, the sort of normativity some would associate with law or etiquette or or baseball or baseball exactly, <laughs> which is one of the examples yes, you right, right, right. So yeah, that part of my autobiography didn't come out, but I did <laughs> played a lot of baseball growing up, uh, and I even played in college for your uh, ah. so um, um, yeah or. Um, these um, views are subject to an arbitrariness problem where they're taking certain kinds of conceptual truths uh, as sort of dispositive or what appear to be certain conceptual as dispositive and using them to, to claim that there couldn't be moral facts. And, and my claim is, well, hold, hold on. Uh, uh, a claim such as the normative claim looks as, as on the face of it have just as much claim to being uh, a framework status sort of proposition, a proposition that anything worth calling a moral system would have to um, uh, incorporate. Um, as some of these other claims you're making, such as if there were moral facts, there's got to be categorical reasons. And um, you know, the argument is that you haven't given us uh, sufficient reason to jump one way on this uh, uh, on this matter rather than the other, rejecting, say, the normative claim as opposed to the claim that um, uh, if there are moral facts and there are categorical reasons. <laughs> Right. right. So um, can you run us through? So that's the that, that dilemma then gets pressed also against uh, another kind of um, denier of moral realism. Yeah. Right. So we've got the error theory, which says not only are there no moral facts, but morality is in some systematic way deceptive because all of our moral beliefs have to be false and or maybe nonsensical, depending on the error theorist we mean, because they don't refer to anything or there are no facts of the matter. Yeah. But there's this other there's this other character who's a little bit more slippery, I take it. Oh, much more slippery. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, called the expressivist. Yeah. Um, and you run a similar kind of, or you run, maybe you run the same dilemma against the expressivist. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about, yeah. well, do you first tell us what expressivism is? Well, maybe that's, I mean, that is quite a task in itself. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so let me back up just a moment. So what, sure. one of the observations that, um, I make when I present, um, uh, the argument we're just running over about without hinges on the claim that if there are moral facts, they've got to be categorical reasons, reasons you have no matter what, um, this is pretty much the argument to which error theorists turn. Um, uh, you'll find very, you know, at least writing after Mackey, this is the one they re- rely really heavily on. So in, in presenting that argument, working through it, I, I take it I was, I was trying to engage with, with the, the main motivation for uh, accepting the error theory. Um, expressivists um, don't really deploy this argument so much. What they like and I'm going to say just a moment, uh, in a moment, what expressivism is. They like a different argument, which says hinges on the claim that um, if any agent judges that say she's morally required to act in a certain way, 
then she must be motivated to, uh, to some degree to, to act in that way. So pausing a really tight connection. In fact, they're going to talk about it as being conceptually necessary connection between moral judgment and motivation. So they think this is a datum that any um, decent metaethical theory needs to accommodate. And, and they press the point against realism that realism struggles to accommodate this datum. Um, so my again, my strategy here is not to say, oh, yeah, uh, realism can accommodate this datum. That's not the sort of strategy I use here. The strategy here is to, once again, um, um, posit a certain kind of dilemma. Um, and um, articulating this dilemma does require us to get straight on what exactly expressivism is. And as you say, this is this is tricky because the, the view is comes in a number of different varieties and get very slippery. But very roughly speaking, the what the expressivist wants to say is that when I judge that um, it's wrong to perform an action, um, my judgment doesn't represent any moral property or moral fact, uh, at least as realists are thinking about it, or even error theorists are thinking about them. Um, rather, what I'm doing is expressing an attitude of disapprobation again uh, towards some element of non-moral reality. So if I say, look, uh, you know, you're stealing that book from the library, that's wrong. An expressivist interpretation of that speech act and the thought which is being expressed by that speech act is something like, yeah, you're expressing disapprobation uh, toward the agent for having performed the action of stealing a book from the library. And it might be because uh, stealings have the property of, of I, I don't know, you know, um, uh, you know uh, somehow um, failing mills, uh, you know, uh, you know, principle of utility or, or what have you. You can fill in a lot of details as to you know why it is that they would express disapprobation um or in virtue of what features they're going to express right. disapprobation of stealing. So, so this view um, notes that it is perfectly situated to capture the really tight connection between moral judgment and moral motivation, because it turns out that basically moral judgments just are uh, expressions of motivational states, states of approbation, disapprobation. Um, okay, so... Suppose that's right. Suppose it's conceptually necessary that these mor- moral judgments are intrinsically motivating. Um, and suppose you argue from that claim that um, we've got good reason to believe that they're normal, no moral facts. Um, I won't spell out the argument here, but I will if you if you ask me to. But ba- basically, the thought is that um, uh, uh, if there were moral facts, then it's highly likely that moral judgments would express moral beliefs. But moral beliefs... Um, as realists think of them, uh, you know, couldn't bear this very intimate connection to motivation. So this gives us really good reason to believe there aren't any moral facts. Okay. So what I want to focus on is this claim that um, um, moral judgments are intrinsically motivating, which they're presenting as a conceptual truth. And then I then I return to what I call the, the normative claim, which is the, the judgment uh, or the claim that uh, it's morally wrong to break one's promises simply because one feels like it. And then I present this a similar to sort of dilemma, like, okay, you know, you want to let go of that claim, at least under a certain interpretation, according to which there really are moral properties, and, and, and hang on to the claim that moral judgments are intrinsically motivating. And what I try to argue through a series of um, maneuvers is that that, too, doesn't look well motivated, that um, we, we have no more reason to go for this claim that moral judgments are intrinsically motivating 
than the rejection of uh, the claim that uh, it's morally wrong to break one's promises. Now, that's kind of a simplified version of the argument, even though it didn't sound so simple as I tried to talk through it, um, So that, because there are other moves to be made in it. But yes, it's, it's a very, very similar strategy. Right. And is is the sort of the, the end game in these arguments, these sort of dilemma arguments, a, um, you know, sometimes philosophers talk about playing for a win and um, playing for a tie. Um, is the is the aim here simply to sort of hold off or put at arm's length or stiff arm some of the um, I take it what. You don't have to be a moral realist to think that some of these moves against realism have the flavor of being just a little bit too quick. Right? Um, so I'm wondering, if is, is the strategy here with the dilemma simply to say, well, not so fast to the anti-realist. There's something that an- the case against realism from the anti-realist has to pres- presuppose that you know, requires a lot more philosophical work to vindicate than the anti-realists have, have, have put up so, so far. Yeah, I think there's definitely a flavor to, to uh, of the arguments uh, of that sort. Um, now, I think strictly speaking, you, you, you could uh, think about the arguments were coming in stages, you know, so so one stage that we've already um, uh, engaged in, we've argued for the conclusion that um, speech is uh, generated by normative features of various kinds. So we've got on the table rights, responsibilities, and obligations. Okay, so I want to say everyone should be on board with that, whether you're a moral anti-realist or not, because we're not yet coming down on whether these things are moral or not. And then we have the second stage of the argument, which goes, well, they sure seem, at least some of them seem to be moral, um, and you know, giving a broadly reading sort of methodology that in this case these judgments are issuing from. And I talk a little bit about this and in some, some other work I talk more about this, I- issuing from a, uh, a sort of epistemic practice that's in good working order. Um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, so, you know, this disappearance has to be taken very seriously. Now, um, these, so that's the second stage. Now, now we come to the question of, well, do we have good reasons to deny the appearances in this case that, you know, that uh, say that, yeah, there's normative stuff, but, but despite the appearances, none of it's moral. And so, yeah, these these arguments that I present against um, um, uh, or objections I present against uh, uh, expressivism and, and error theory and the like are supposed to um, uh, make the charge that these arguments aren't good enough to sort of discharge the um, – the well, I don't want to quite put it that way. These arguments aren't quite good enough for us to believe that we ought to deny the appearances in this in this instance. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So not showing that they're false, right? But like, it's time to come up with some better arguments. Right. 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 Um, let me um, uh, ask next about um, another sort of, uh, and again, this is. Um, uh, I'm not sure if, if 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 this is a controversial thing to say, but the the, the next sort of critic that you take on probably represents what um, might be the the mainstream now in, uh, or at least one of the more formidable um, views. Um, so the constructivist is yeah. somebody else who comes up for a certain kind of critique, and I take it that um, again, I'm not, I don't work in this in, in metaethics, but I take it that this is a pretty mainstream view at this point, and perhaps. Um, uh, more than than the error theorist or the expressivist or the the, the constructivist represents a kind of um, uh, you know the, the uh, a really popular view these days. Right. Um, can you tell us a little bit about sure. um, yeah, yeah. how those arguments run? Yeah. So so maybe we should talk just a little bit about 
the difference between, say, uh, a realist view that I'm sympathetic with and a constructivist view. So, sure. so they're going to agree. They're close cousins. Um, um, at least let me put it this way, that in, in some very prominent um, uh, versions, constructivism is a close cousin to realism. And the constructivist sees as the opponents the same guys that you see as your opponents. Yes, that's right. right. That's yeah. right. Good. So, that's, so they're agreed on that matter too. So what they're going to the, the fundamental disagreement between these theories uh, concerns the nature of moral facts. And what what the realists are going to say, at least the realists that I'm concerned with here, and the, the view I want to try to defend, um, is that there are certain kinds of fundamental moral facts. You might think of them as a sort of very general moral norms, such as one ought not to uh, engage in recreational slaughter or or uh, break promises simply for uh, the sake of. Uh, saving face or what have you. So some some fundamental norms and that these these norms don't hold in virtue of the fact that agents have certain kinds of attitudes or would have certain kinds of attitudes towards non-moral reality. So it's not the case, according to the realists, that it's wrong to uh, engage in recreational slaughter because people happen to disapprove of recreational slaughter or they would disapprove of recreational slaughter if they were sort of given vivid descriptions of it or something like that. Um, the constructivist disagrees. So the constructivist is going to say, no, at the end of the day, fundamental moral norms or fundamental moral facts are determined by the attitudes of uh, actual or hypothetical agents. So that's that's the difference. Um and in a lot of ways, we get closer to um, uh, the debate between Hobbes and Clark here when we talk about the debate between realists and constructivists. Um, so the basic the basic point I want to make here against constructivism is that, yeah, constructivists can say that not only is speech constituted by normative features, they can also agree that the at least some of these normative features are moral. What they're going to do, however, is offer a non-realist understanding or non-realist construal of these normative features. Um, and here I get worried about how the constructivist is going to try to pull this off. Um, the thought is roughly this. When you try to characterize the circumstances uh, under which a an agent, you call that agent a constructing agent, right? whose attitudes make it the case that something is wrong or right or what have you. When you try to specify the conditions uh, under which that agent um, performs uh, uh, or has attitudes of approval or disapproval towards non-moral reality, it's really difficult to do so in such a way that um, one can do so without sort of smuggling in into those conditions um, uh, commitment to moral facts. And in this case, I try to point out that it's really difficult to do so without uh, smuggling in various uh, commitments to claims about speech, which are going to carry with them commitments to moral facts, if what I've argued thus far is correct. So that's just sort of a like what's what's behind the argument. Um, so, uh, you know, take a case in which uh, I falsely promise you to meet you for coffee. Um, is that wrong? Now, a constructivist of a certain kind is going to say, well, that's wrong. Uh, just in case an idealized version of myself would disapprove of it. OK, that's what's going to make it wrong. And I, and I observe that. Well, hold on. Let's let's look at you know what it is that the the constructing agent, the idealized version of myself, has an attitude towards. It's the performance of a speech act, right? It's it's 
moral reality of a certain kind that the agent, if the argument's been right, um, that's already in the picture and, and towards which the uh, constructing agent has an attitude. But if that's true, um, it can't be that uh, constructivists are giving us an account of sort of fundamental moral norms or anything that they're already in the picture. Um, so that's one stage of the argument. It's not the, the final stage, but at least you can kind of get a flavor for uh, what I'm, what I'm driving at here. Um, mm-hmm. That it's going to be difficult to specify the conditions in such a way that they don't make a central reference to speech and, uh, and hence uh, norm, uh, moral features. Yeah. And that, I mean, that, Again, as an outsider in a lot of these debates, um, at least as they play out in, in metaethics, I'm more familiar with the ways that they play out in in some of the ways in which political philosophers yeah. uh, appeal to yeah. um, constructivist ideas. There does seem to be sort of an old, like, you know, like an old, like almost euthyphro dilemma in the in the, that's, uh, right. that's that's at the problem, yeah, no, no, <laughs> right? right. Um, yeah. Uh, that I don't, I, I I just don't see how they get around. I, I don't see how they get around. Um, uh, and I guess what your argument is saying is like you could even almost characterize your responses. It, it's the youth of yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um Well, great. Um, so uh, let me then move on to uh, to the final chapter of the book, yeah, yeah, which yeah. Um, which takes up um, in, 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 in in very careful detail. Uh, again, uh, a, a real mainstream and very influential argument that. Um, uh, is due to, um, I take it mainly to Sharon Street, yeah, right? right? Um, although, you know, it, it's, it, it, it can be found in all kinds of other, uh, uh, places and certain philosophers of mathematics have been using this kind of argument for, uh, against mathematical realism for a long time, which is the sort of, um, epistemological worry, right? Um, if there are facts of the sort that the moral realist uh, says there are, if there uh, um, are items of this kind, um, there are questions about um, not only how we could know them or how we could come to grasp them, but uh, now to put um, the, 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 the finer point on, on, on Street's particular version of this, it would be a remarkable coincidence if our um, reasoning capacities and cognitive capacities um, developed evolutionarily in such a way as to help us to grasp them because the evolutionary pressures seem to point uh, in some other direction. Um, uh, am I getting that right? Yeah. Is that the yeah, challenge? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so can, can you walk us through this? I, I, again, this is a, a fascinating, but the book ends on such a, a fascinating set of, of considerations. Can you run us through the, the, that sure. argument? Yeah, sure. And basically, you know, um, um, before we get to this chapter, the preceding chapter uh, is, is really the conclusion of the speech act argument. So, mm-hmm. OK, but uh, I kind of saw some low hanging fruit here and I, and I thought, <laughs> oh, well, you know, it looks as if you know, we can get some explanatory uh, benefits from the argument as as well. So so the last chapter is assuming that the argument has gone through. Um, so there are no new, uh, as it were, moves being made in that regard. Um, but yeah, so there's this challenge of how it could be on the assumption that um, our faculties or capacities for making moral judgment have sort of been really, really heavily influenced by evolutionary forces that, in the case of morality, a pretty good reason to believe are, you know, in any interesting sense, aimed at truth or forming true beliefs, but simply, you know, getting us around the world. Um, so there are, are really two main moves that I make in the chapter. And here, I'm, as I say, I'm, I'm trying to uh, uh, 
draw out some of the interesting uh, implications, theoretical implications of the speech act argument. Um, the first move is uh, to talk about and to address a worry that, to my knowledge, really has not received the sort of attention that it needs to receive, and that is, well, how in the world do we grasp these facts in the first place? How do we get them in mind in such a way or to such an extent that we can form predicative thoughts about them and so forth? So um, my suggestion here is something like um, – it could be that, you know, well, let's just assume that I'm correct to claim that moral facts plays certain kinds of explanatory roles. They're the sort of things that, to use the terminology in the book, count generate speech, where this is a non-causal sort of uh, explanatory relation. Now, it could be that um, we grasp these facts or get these facts in mind in virtue of the fact that we we can use concepts of various kinds that um, are, are descriptive concepts. Um, um, uh, being the sort of obligation that, and this is to put it very, very roughly, you know, count generates the performance of a, a promise or what have you. So the basic thought is something like, if you've got facts that play certain kinds of explanatory roles, we can get those facts in mind in virtue of using descriptive concepts that those facts satisfy, or those properties satisfy. Um, this is highly controversial, obviously, in philosophy language, but, you know, it's, it's a live view, and I think it would have to be supplemented beyond what I do here. But at least I try to show you know, this is this is an option available to the rest. Once you've got moral facts or moral properties playing certain kinds of explanatory roles, um, uh, you should be able to grasp them by the way of certain kinds of descriptive concepts. And one of the examples I use in the chapter is to talk about, say, you know, uh, the subatomic realm. Right um, there, too, it may be that you know we're we're getting things in mind. We're referring to them in virtue of uh, working with certain kinds of descriptions. Um, Strictly speaking, we don't see them, we see effects, and we, we try to theorize about these things by talking about these entities as being the sort of thing that has, you know, plays such and such explanatory role. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's the first move. Okay. Using, employing the arguments, conclusions, such a way that we can give some sort of account of how we might get these properties and facts in mind. Um, speculative, controversial, but I think, you know, as I say, worth thinking about, worth working out. Then the second move is to actually engage with Street's worry, which is whether we could have reliable access to these facts, right? Whether um, we could track these facts to use for sort of language. Um, now, as a matter of fact, I think there are, are a bunch of good, good responses to um, Street's argument. Um, but the response I use here is something that goes along the following lines. Let's just suppose that the speech act argument is correct, that in order to speak, um, it's got to be the case that there are normative features that are ingredient in the generation of speech, that some of these normative features are moral. Now let's add what seems to me a pretty plausible assumption, that um, uh, uh, it's evolutionary evolutionarily advantageous for us to be able to speak, to be able to do such things as promise and command and assert. Um, but in order to do that, we've got to be able to, tr- to sort of keep track uh, of, of um, the rights, responsibilities, and obligations that speakers have. Um, uh, we have to engage in this sort of normative scorekeeping, right? Mm-hmm. Um, holding each other accountable and so on and so forth. That's why it's going to be evolutionarily advantageous. But then um, I claim, well, we've got the makings of a 
you know, pretty interesting response. It actually grants Strieg quite a bit, or at least this evolutionary debunking argument quite a bit, and says, you know what, it wouldn't be that surprising that uh, evolution had sort of pushed us in the direction of being able to track normative facts, even if they're realistically construed. We need to do so in order to speak. Um, now, mind you, we, not, we might not track them under the description or, or using moral concepts or, you know, or our ancestors may not have done that. But nevertheless, the claim is we would have been tracking those facts and then, you know, given reflections so on and so forth, we'd be able to uh, you know, come to more accurate views about the nature of these facts and so on and so forth, be able to theorize them about them in the way we do. But yeah, that's basically the strategy, trying to, trying to um, uh, capitalize on some of the, uh, um, implications of the speech act argument. Well, excellent. Um, Terrence, you know, you've been very, very generous with your time. Um, and it's been great, uh, talking to you, uh, about your book, uh, your new book, uh, speech and morality on the meta ethical implications of speaking. Um, so this is your second book, uh, defending moral realism. Um, what's uh, on the horizon? Where will you go? Where will you go next? Is there a third <laughs> yeah, book? Believe it, not. <laughs> believe it or not. Yeah. Uh, there are actually two things that I'm, um, you know, bigger projects I'm working on. Uh, one is really off the beaten path as far as sort of contemporary analytic philosophy goes. Um, it's a project in philosophy of religion, um, uh, talking about the ethical dimensions of ritualized, uh, um, religious activity. Um, so, uh, as I say, if you know anything about the, um, Literature and philosophy religion, a lot of it has to do with rationality, religious belief, and problem of evil, and so on and so forth. This is just, you know, as I say, off the beaten path and talking about, you know, what it is to engage in ritual and why it might make sense and uh, why ethically might be important to do so. So that's something I've been working on quite a bit. Um, uh, the other project, and, and this is, yeah, part three, <laughs> is a, uh, uh, a joint authored project. Uh, Russ Schaefer-Landau at the University of Wisconsin and John Bankson at the University of Wisconsin, two really fine philosophers. Yep. Uh, and I are working on a book manuscript uh, that defends a certain kind of moral non-naturalism. Um, roughly the view that, yeah, there are robust um, moral facts and they're not the sort of facts that play any sort of explanatory role or suited to play any sort of explanatory role in the natural sciences. So this view has made something of a comeback. We're going to try to really give it uh, um, uh, a sophisticated uh, and uh, sympathetic type of uh, development. Um, we're, 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 we're making progress on it. We've got a bunch of material and... Um, I think it's going to be, yeah, uh, 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 well, hopefully a really interesting uh, uh, development of the position. Well, it sounds fascinating. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's been a, again, as an outsider, it, it does look as if there's a, a lot of, um, you know, metaethics is the site where a lot of um, longstanding debates that were more at home in previous generations in other areas of philosophy uh, are now coming uh, home to roost in a way. Yeah, so yeah. naturalism and non-naturalism, it seems like th that it's really in the meta-ethical literature where that argument is being picked up again. Correct. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, that sounds great. Um, and, you know, I'll keep an eye out for for, for that uh, uh, co-authored work and uh, 
Maybe in the future I'll have the three of oh, you yeah. on. Uh, <laughs> talking over one another. <laughs> yeah. Which sounds like it would be good fun. Yeah. Um, but until then, um, you know, again, thanks a lot uh, for joining us on New Books in Philosophy. And uh, the book is Speech and Morality, Oxford University Press. Uh, Terrence Cunio, thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Bob. You've been listening to my interview with Professor Terrence Cunio of the University of Vermont. We were talking about his new book, Speech and Morality, on the Meta-Ethical Implications of Speaking, newly published by Oxford University Press. I'm Robert Talese, your host. This is New Books in Philosophy. Thank you for listening.